This week on Viewpoints. Change is what is wild about nature, and we should cherish that and look out for some of these incoming species. A different perspective on invasive species. Then... I very often watch students speak and they lose control of their breath. And There's a difference between speaking from your diaphragm and speaking from your chest. And when you speak from your chest, you lose control of the force of your voice. How do you feel about public speaking? I'm Marty Peterson. And I'm Gary Price. These stories in-depth this week on your public affairs magazine, Viewpoints. Sorry to interrupt your jams, murder mystery podcasts, or motivational beach noises, but we got something else you might like to hear. It's called cash. That's the sound of an extra 250 bucks after your first 10 deliveries with Uber Eats. That's right, an extra $250 on top of all the other cash you'll make during those first 10 deliveries. If that sounds good, visit t.uber.com slash extra 250. Uber Eats, deliver with us. Limited time offer, terms apply. See t.uber.com slash extra 250 for more details. I'm not going very far. It's too uncomfortable. I'm in a hurry. Sometimes I just forget. There's no such thing as a good excuse for not buckling up. You're not only putting yourself at risk of injury or death, it could also cost you lots of money. Cops are writing tickets, so why take the risk? Do the smart thing and start buckling up every trip, day or night. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. There's been a lot of talk about how certain species of non-native plants and animals are upsetting the ecosystems in various parts of the United States and the world. South Florida is dealing with Burmese pythons. Many Midwestern rivers are overrun with Asian carp. And plants such as Japanese knotweed and English ivy are choking out other more desirable plants in gardens, woodlands, and developed areas in the U.S. and overseas. How did these alien plants and animals get here? Are they really that harmful? And what can we do, if anything, to contain or eradicate them? Fred Pierce is a British science journalist who has studied the issue extensively. He writes about it in his book, The New Wild, Why Invasive Species Will Be Nature's Salvation. We asked him what an invasive or alien species actually is. Well, we're talking about alien species that have come in from outside and take hold. People then talk about them being invasive. Actually, you can have domestic species that are invasive too, but we kind of tend to ignore them. We get a downer on foreigners, basically. We're talking about foreign species coming in where they haven't been seen before. People get a bit upset about that. In the UK, it's the Japanese knotweed that's got people up in arms. There's even an official Japanese knotweed officer, the only one in the world, headquartered in Swansea, Wales, to keep track of and try to eradicate the plant. But where did it and other alien species come from? Sometimes it's deliberate. Japanese knotweed here in the UK, it was brought in by gardeners, Victorian gardeners, about 150 years ago. They looked pretty good in the garden, but then they escaped over the wall and they started spreading around through the suburbs. Sometimes nature brings them. They just fly in or they can move around, especially marine species move around on the ocean currents. That's pretty normal. It's been going on forever. And sometimes they hitchhike a ride. They turn up in grain stores, so they just travel with the grain, or they may travel in your backpack, or they come in cargo holds. 
ballast water tanks on ships are a big way of moving marine species around. So if you go to San Francisco Bay, hundreds of alien species there, and most of them arrive on ships one way or another. The numbers of many invasive species are amazing, at least on their face. Pierce says that the way many governments count the infestations of aliens is exaggerated, makes it sound like an entire region is overgrown, when in fact, there might not be more than one or two of the plants in the area. I came across a case of a weed in the UK, which goes along riverbanks, and you know you see it from time to time, but the surveyors said that if you find one example or stretch of riverbank, they will mark it down as that riverbank has been invaded. So then you add up all these bits of the riverbank that have been invaded by this plant, and it looks like it's taken over the whole riverbank for miles and miles and miles. And it's complete nonsense. There's just a few examples. Pierce says that often invasions by these foreign plants are blown out of proportion. He suggests that we all calm down and quit being so paranoid about it. Dow Orion agrees. She's a permaculture educator and author of the book Beyond the War on Invasive Species, a Permaculture Approach to Ecosystem Restoration. She says that often a so-called alien species, like the Japanese knotweed, isn't so much an invader as it is a way for nature to reclaim land that humans have made uninhabitable by native species. One of the concerns with Japanese knotweed is that it appears to crowd out native vegetation. But one of the issues that I see is that given this degraded state of streams and waterways in the temperate climate world, basically America, England, Europe, is Japanese knotweed the only type of species that will live there now? Because we don't even know if native species will survive and thrive in the type of environments that we've created. So is the issue the knotweed or is the issue the way that we use and interact with waterways and water resources? As for alien plants overtaking native species, Orion says that many of those flowers, trees, and other plants that we call native aren't the result of Mother Nature's haphazard spreading of seeds around the country. In fact, they were put there by design and cultivated by humans. A lot of plant species and animal species that we think of as native or as wildflowers were actually managed by indigenous people in the Americas for food and fiber, for medicine. And that's an aspect of this whole kind of invasion ideology that I think is really missing up to this point. By the same token, many animals that are considered native are not native at all. Pierce says that Europeans who came here from the old world brought two of our most beneficial bugs with them. You didn't have earthworms until they showed up from Europe. You probably did before the last ice age, but the last ice age had wiped them out of most of North America, except down in the far south. Earthworms came back when Europeans showed up, completely changed your soils. Honeybees, everybody gets very worried about the diseases that have been attacking honeybees, and we've got to save our American bees. Guys, you didn't have any bees until Europeans brought them over 500 years ago. So surprising things that you think are kind of natural native part of the environment, turns out they showed up from somewhere else a few hundred years ago. He says that when alien species show up, like the earthworms and the honeybees did 500 years ago, nature usually has a way of making them fit into the ecosystem. So we shouldn't panic but allow the earth time to work it out for herself. We tend to think that species of kind of plants and animals and insects and so on have co-evolved is a phrase that gets used a lot over millions of years. 
to be sort of perfectly fitting into their local ecosystem. But if you talk to ecologists who actually analyze how ecosystems really work, they find it's very different. They find species are constantly moving in and out. Animals are eating one thing and then they move on to eat something else. They get eaten by one thing and then get eaten by something else. Everything is much more kind of dynamic and it's a sort of constantly changing kaleidoscope of species. There are not many places in the world where ecosystems are unchanging and probably where they are unchanging. It's really rather unhealthy because they're more vulnerable. I think change is good. Change is what is wild about nature. And we should cherish that and look out for some of these incoming species, the go-getter colonists. These are like go-getter humans. These people can be a bit disruptive. These species can be a bit disruptive, but we need them as part of the dynamism of our ecosystems, the same as we need people coming in from outside to be dynamic, to be go-getters in order to keep our societies going. So I think maybe that's balance. I don't know. We certainly need them. You can find out more about the upsides of invasive species in Fred Pierce's book, The New Wild, Why Invasive Species Will Be Nature's Salvation, available on Amazon and through independent publisher Beacon Press at beacon.org. You can also find Dow Orion's book, Beyond the War on Invasive Species, a permaculture approach to ecosystem restoration, online or through the website resiliencepermaculture.com. To find out more about all of our guests and past shows, visit viewpointsradio.org. This segment originally aired in June 2015 and was written by Pat Reuter. I'm Gary Price. Coming up, we offer some pointers on a subject you either love or hate public speaking when Viewpoints returns. Since World War I, more than 645,000 service members have given their lives in defense of our freedom. On Memorial Day, we pause to honor and remember these men and women who made the ultimate sacrifice. Join USAA this Memorial Day weekend in paying tribute to these heroes by dedicating a poppy, the enduring symbol of remembrance, and engage in the social conversation using the hashtag HonorThroughAction. To learn more about how you can honor those who gave their all, visit poppyinmemory.com. Sorry to interrupt your jams, murder mystery podcasts, or motivational beach noises, but we got something else you might like to hear. It's called cash. That's the sound of an extra 250 bucks after your first 10 deliveries with Uber Eats. That's right, an extra $250 on top of all the other cash you'll make during those first 10 deliveries. If that sounds good, visit t.uber.com slash extra 250. Uber Eats, deliver with us. Limited time offer, terms apply. See t.uber.com slash extra 250 for more details. A recent survey of 2,000 Americans conducted by a one poll finds that 98% of Americans think you need more protein than you do. The survey also shows that 55% worry they couldn't survive on a vegan diet based on the amount of protein they think they need. In fact, misconceptions about protein and plant-based lifestyles abound. Only one in three respondents know that two cups of cooked lentils is equal to the same amount of protein in a five-ounce steak, according to Vegan Strong Assistant Director and Strength Athlete, Danny Taylor. Most people don't realize that plants have all the protein you need, yet many elite athletes are converting to a plant-based diet because it's helping their performance and strength improve dramatically. Eating a whole food plant-based diet can meet your protein needs while being affordable and effective. 
Find out more at veganstrong.com. That's veganstrong.com. It's been said that public speaking is one of the most feared and stressful activities an individual can undertake. But why is that? What is it about standing in front of a group of people for a few minutes and presenting information on a topic you know? Why do our hands sweat, our hearts race, and our minds sometimes go blank? Anytime we're getting social feedback, anytime we're being evaluated by other people in our groups, these things are really important to people because our survival depends on it. And so if you can potentially lose social standing, then your survival is actually impacted negatively. And that's why we care so much about social evaluation. That's Jeremy Jameson, an associate professor of psychology at the University of Rochester in New York. Jameson and his colleagues studied the stress of public speaking, including the signs that a speaker is feeling the pressure. These reactions, though, need to be interpreted carefully. Pretty much the signs that we notice, things like our heart might be racing, our palms might be sweaty, these things just mean that we're feeling a lot of arousal. So the sympathetic nervous system is one of our body's stress response systems. And when it comes online, it comes online because we're feeling a lot of this arousal. And that's all it's saying. Those signs, they don't have any valence component to them. Having sweaty palms or raising heart, it's not necessarily bad or good. The valence in what we call approach and avoidance motivation components, where those come from, is how we appraise both the situation and our body's responses, so our cognitive perceptions of what's going on. To find out what was going on, Jameson wired up two groups of test subjects to monitor their hearts and blood flow. Then he gave each group three minutes to prepare a five-minute speech on their strong and weak points. The subjects gave their talks in front of evaluators who gave out nonverbal negative feedback, frowning, furrowing their brows, writing things down, to heighten the anxiety levels of the subjects. The only difference between the two groups of subjects is that one group was instructed that stress can be a good thing. The common theme behind these instructions was that the stress you're experiencing, especially the arousal you're experiencing with stress, it's not bad. So people automatically assume that any time they're feeling kind of their heart racing or their palms sweating, that this is a negative sign that they're going to do bad on whatever task is coming up after that. But that's not necessarily the case, that people can perceive arousal as a coping tool. This is actually helping you do well. So we go into talking about how if we didn't have these responses, our ancestors wouldn't have survived. So this is a very adaptive thing that we have. There's a reason why our bodies have stress responses. We talk about how an increase in arousal could help deliver oxygenated blood around the body, especially to the brain. Talk about how this kind of positive sorts of stress responses, these approach sort of stress responses, are associated with improvements in cognitive performance. So people are getting this information before, half the people are getting the information before they begin their speech about the benefits of stress arousal. And the outcome? Jameson says the group that was shown that stress can be beneficial did better than the group that received no instruction before speaking. We found out that the people who were given the reappraisal instructions or who were told to reframe the meaning of stress, they had much more adaptive sorts of stress responses than those who didn't get the instructions. And what we mean by adaptive responses was that we weren't decreasing the amount of overall arousal. So these people were still highly aroused, so they had a lot of sympathetic nervous system activation. But the key was that the type of stress was changing. And these individuals are pumping more blood through the body per minute. And more blood means more oxygen is getting out to these peripheral areas. And that is a good thing, usually for 
any kind of performance, including speaking performance or test performance. Think of world-class athletes preparing to perform. They feel anxious and can exhibit sweaty palms and increased heart rates because their jobs are stressful. Jameson says that the difference is that in their minds, they reframe that stress to be a good thing that they can use to their advantage, and they end up performing better. He also says that this ability to reframe the meaning of stress can have a residual effect. We had them do an attentional bias task. And what this task was getting at was whether people were being vigilant for threat cues in the future, so coming up. And what we found was that the reappraisal participants were less vigilant for threat cues after the speech than people who were not given the instructions. And the reason why that finding I think is important is because it can help inform how these individuals would respond to future instances of stress. So if you're very vigilant for threatening information, some ambiguous feedback you might get from somebody will be construed as negative feedback, and then that might elicit a sort of negative stress response. On the other hand, if you're not vigilant for these threat cues, an ambiguous situation might just be seen as neutral or even maybe slightly positive, and you won't have the same kind of response. And so I thought that was really interesting. As we said, the fear of a poor evaluation can lead to the stress that people have when they speak in public. But why do people think they'll be evaluated poorly? Philip Dalton is an associate professor of rhetoric and chair of that department at Hofstra University in New York. He says that among his students, not being prepared is a big anxiety producer. A lot of people have anxiety in the buildup to the event, and as a consequence of that, they don't prepare sometimes. And then when the event time comes, there's kind of a panic, a realization that I may not be prepared. And some of that may be real, and some of that may be built up in their mind, uh, this feeling that they're not prepared, which is kind of normal if you think about it. If this is an activity that you've not done a whole lot of in your life, you don't have a real sense of what it means to be adequately prepared. So you can overthink that and let it get ahead of you. Dalton says that part of being poorly prepared is not being able to impart information to your audience in a cogent and logical manner. Another problem I see with a lot of students in public speaking situations is not knowing well how to organize their thoughts and ideas. I think a lot of students aren't familiar with the inventionary process where you come to know better through the process of engaging your ideas, which ideas are good, which ones are defensible, which ones have good support for them. That is a product of writing them down or talking with others about them. And being vaguely familiar with what you want to say is not the same as planning what you want to say. And it's in the planning that you get to know well what you can get away with. And it's also in the planning that you, you build up a comfort with the subject matter. Jeremy Jamison says that real practice is a great way to reduce negative stress behind the lectern. What practice does is it increases our pace of our ability to cope with something. So if we practice a lot, we've done a lot of hard work that went into this, we're confident that we have the ability to address this stressful situation because the speech is very well learned. We've put a lot of hard work into preparing it, into making it. And so we appraise our coping resources as high and we do better. Also working off of drive theory, you see that people, when they can almost automatize things, so the speech is so well learned that you just kind of give it from memory, you could just kind of give it automatically, you can blank out and just go. Those situations can be good too. When you're in these kind of public speaking situations and there is this high level arousal, that arousal can help facilitate that dominant response, which is the well learned speech in that case. 
So there is reason to think that practice is a very, very good thing for preparing public speeches. Philip Dalton says that relaxing before giving a speech can help, and so can knowing how to breathe correctly during your address. Another thing I tell students is to control their breathing. Sounds a little strange, but I very often watch students speak and they lose control of their breath. And there's a difference between speaking from your diaphragm and speaking from your chest. And when you speak from your chest, you lose control of the force of your voice. But the student getting up there speaking doesn't know that that's what's happening. They just feel nervous. If they learn to speak from their diaphragm and to project from their diaphragm, they end up with more air. They also breathe longer or more often, which gives them some pauses and a little moment to kind of relax. Finally, Dalton says that speakers should be aware that they themselves often overestimate the amount of nervousness the audience picks up on. Most of the time, listeners don't know that you have sweaty palms, flushing in the face, or shaking knees, so it doesn't pay to worry that they do. He also suggests that if you're asked to deliver an address, study the elements of a good speech before you begin writing. They include an introduction, body, and a conclusion. You should have a thought or a point or a thesis, and you should convey reasons to believe your thesis if it's a persuasive speech or support if it's just informative. And you should use things like transitions and signposting. So as you go from one point to another, you you segue and you indicate where you're going. So there's kind of a meta-awareness of the content of your speech. And when you know those things, the idea of getting up and speaking in front of a group becomes less daunting. You're filling in the blanks, but you know what blanks to fill. That's the comforting thing. You can find more about Philip Dalton and the Department of Rhetoric at Hofstra.edu and on Facebook. To read up on Jeremy Jameson and his research, log on to Rochester.edu. For more information about all of our guests, you can always visit our site at viewpointsradio.org. This segment originally aired in January 2015 and was written by Pat Reuter. Studio production by Jason Dickey. I'm Marty Peterson. Viewpoints returns in just a moment. Sorry to interrupt your jams, murder mystery podcasts, or motivational beach noises, but we got something else you might like to hear. It's called cash. That's the sound of an extra 250 bucks after your first 10 deliveries with Uber Eats. That's right, an extra $250 on top of all the other cash you'll make during those first 10 deliveries. If that sounds good, visit t.uber.com slash extra 250. Uber Eats, deliver with us. Limited time offer, terms apply. See t.uber.com slash extra 250 for more details. As a dentist, I know what my patients are saying during times when they really can't speak. Mm-hmm. She says her gums are irritated. Mm-hmm. Is there anything you can do? Absolutely. You can try New Crest Advanced Gum Restore. Mm-hmm. Yep, New Crest Advanced Gum Restore. It detoxifies below the gum line to restore your gums back to health in just seven days. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Healthy gums, healthy mouth. New Crest Advanced Gum Restore. Healthy, beautiful smiles for life. Welcome to Culture Crash, where we examine what's new and old in entertainment. About a year into its life as a streaming service, HBO Max has certainly had some high highs and some low lows. Its launch was famously a bit of a mess, as it was originally unavailable on Roku and Amazon Fire Stick. 
several of the titles that were intended to be released with the service's launch, including a documentary on Anthony Bourdain and a long-awaited Friends cast reunion show, still haven't been released. And director Christopher Nolan loudly proclaimed it to be the worst streaming service when tensions were high over Warner Brothers' plans to release new films directly to the service. Still, HBO Max has seemingly weathered all of those storms pretty well. The service is now available on Roku and Firestick. Those forthcoming titles remain eagerly anticipated, and the direct rollout of new titles has actually worked pretty well. Judas and the Black Messiah was originally released on Max, and it secured an Oscar nomination for Best Picture, as well as a win for Daniel Kaluuya in the Oscars Best Supporting Actor category. Godzilla v. Kong still managed to earn over $400 million at the global box office, including $93 million stateside, despite its simultaneous release on HBO Max and in theaters. And that direct-to-max plan saved all of us the time, money, and hassle of seeing the disappointing Wonder Woman 1984 in theaters by letting us watch, or in my wife's case, stop watching, the movie at home instead. But in addition to all of that, the real secret is that HBO Max's bench is deep. It has stirring, groundbreaking originals such as It's a Sin and Generation. It has a collection of movies from Kill Bill to Blade Runner and from Mr. Smith Goes to Washington to Goodfellas that outpace all of its streaming rivals. Its inclusion of Turner Classic Movies, Studio Ghibli, and the entire HBO back library has made it probably the richest library of all those streaming options, And I know for me, it has become my first line of perusing when I'm looking for a movie or a show to watch. HBO Max had its rollout compared to the nightmare rollout of Quibi. But while Quibi died a swift death to the internet graveyard, HBO Max has proved to be a juggernaut that really does seem poised to rival Netflix and Hulu for the foreseeable future. I'm Evan Rowe. Hey, we get it. You don't want to be hearing a progressive commercial right now. So let us tell you something you do want to hear. You are powerful. You're a warrior who bathes in your enemy's tears. Then you step out of that refreshing tear bath and into a bathrobe that somehow looks good on you. Yeah, you can pull off a robe. There. Don't you feel better? You'll also feel better when you save money for driving safely with Snapshot from Progressive. Mmm, savings you can use to buy more robes. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Snapshot not available in California, North Carolina, or from all agents. Sorry to interrupt your jams, murder mystery podcasts, or motivational beach noises, but we got something else you might like to hear. It's called cash. That's the sound of an extra 250 bucks after your first 10 deliveries with Uber Eats. That's right, an extra $250 on top of all the other cash you'll make during those first 10 deliveries. If that sounds good, visit t.uber.com slash extra 250. Uber Eats, deliver with us. Limited time offer, terms apply. See t.uber.com slash extra 250 for more details. 
And that's Viewpoints for this week. Viewpoints is a production of MediaTrax Communications. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram to learn more about upcoming shows. And find a library of past programs on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. Plus, you'll always find previous segments and more information about our guests at viewpointsradio.org. Join us again next week for another edition of Viewpoints. Viewpoints.